Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Do you have any regrets about coming now? I saw some of your faces like, oh, brother. Yeah, welcome to Christ Church. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to open your Bibles, love for you to have it open so you can see what we're looking at. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 18 through the beginning of the, chap- of the fourth chapter. Uh, we're also providing, a, you'll see a number that's going to be posted here on the screen, a phone number. And we're giving a text number that's going to be made available for people that want to text questions uh, that they might have from the message. With the 28-minute window and the topic we're going to be covering, which is so personal and intimate, there might be some questions that I didn't anticipate or I just couldn't cover in our time. And we're affording the church starting last Thursday night all the way through the three services this morning to give you an opportunity. And if uh, questions come in, uh, we're going to do a Facebook Live response. It might be me. It might be me and one of our elders or me and some of the staff. Uh, however appropriate it is to answer those questions, uh, we want to afford you the opportunity. And so throughout the morning, that number will appear. And if you want to text a question or seek some clarification, uh, we'll do our very best to answer it. So whether it's been myself or uh, Mike Ackerman or Michael DeFazio or Drake Holderman last weekend, uh, the four or five of us that have stood on this stage and taught through this text, the thing we want you to hold on to is we're calling this particular letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians, just like us, we're calling it supremacy. Because what we're realizing is what Paul has established for us so far is Jesus is supreme, his truth is supreme, and his power is supreme. But in case there's any misunderstanding, he doesn't make you and me supreme. He, he is our supremacy. And when we live our lives fully engaged and enveloped in him, then his supremacy leaks out of us. But to try to have the supremacy of Jesus in our salvation is not something that he affords us. And it guides us in what Paul does when he writes letters like this. He guides us in, here's the truth. Now, how do you live this truth out? How does that truth become apparent in you and outside of you? And this is where we're at in today's particular text. Uh, In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 3, if your Bibles are open in verse 17, Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. This is the end of Drake's text last weekend. But I want to slow down and, and point out what he's saying. Whatever you do, whether it's spoken or action, do that because of Jesus. Do that for Jesus. Do that through Jesus. Don't just do it. As Drake pointed out last week, you can't kill yourself. Jesus has to take that death upon himself, and this is how we die, so that we can become alive in him. Not alive by our own power, but alive by his. And so today is one of those texts that's very controversial in 2020. And it's okay, I understand why it's controversial, and that's what I want to deal with it. But I want to be honest with you, I'm not going to deal with it from a defensive posture. I'm not embarrassed of what the Word of God says. It says what it says, and it means what it says. And we have no, no reason or there's no plausible means of me standing up here and telling you that this isn't really what it's supposed to be. No, this is exactly what it means. How do we live it? So to not take a defensive posture, I want to take a positive posture with it and present it this way. Instead of us asking ourselves the question, what would happen if I don't do this? Let's ask a better question. What would happen if I did? What would happen if I lived this out? If I truly believe that the supremacy of Jesus will see me through this and give me the strength and power and wisdom to know how to live this out, what might happen if I invested myself fully in this rather than do I really have to and if I don't, what's going to happen to me? And during World War II, you might know, sociologically, something happened in our country. First of all, hundreds of thousands of our men 
left our country and went to war. Men from all over the world gathered on this theater to fight these great battles. And too many men died. And it affected our country desperately because these men would go away. And many of them, or at least a significant number of them, were getting married before they went to war, marrying their high school sweetheart or whatever. And some of them had already been married and had children and went off to war. And many didn't return. And that left widows and children without fathers. And the women would go into the factories and take the jobs while the men were over fighting World War II. When the men came back, the men went right back into their jobs. And these women who had learned to enjoy what they were doing, they, were, they lost their jobs. Some of them lost their husbands. Some of the kids lost their fathers. And our country for about a year and a half, two years sociologically had a housing shortage because they, the women couldn't afford the houses. So what they would do is they would live with friends and family until they either got remarried or they got a job or they figured out where they were going to live. And in the midst of this, I was reading this illustration of a lady, a true story of a lady who came across a five-year-old young lady, and she realized that this little girl's mom and sister, that they were moving from friends and family's houses to try to find places to live until they figured out what they were going to do with the loss of their dad and their husband. And this elderly woman said to this young child, it's too bad your family doesn't have a home. And she said, the little girl looked her right in the eyes and says, we have a home, we just don't have a house to put it in. And I want you to think about this this morning. Where do you put your faith? Do you have a faith, but where do you put it? Because if you have a faith that's tucked in your pocket and only shows up on Sunday mornings when you come into a room like this, okay, but that's not faith. A faith that doesn't affect every area of your life isn't real. It's religion. It's not faith. And so do you have a place to put your faith? Because Paul will tell you that the best place, in fact, the most important place that you can demonstrate your faith is in your home, and I'll confess it's the hardest place, isn't it? Because the people in your home know the real you. They know your good days and your bad days, your best days and your worst days. They know all of these things. And so for us to invest our faith and really live it out in our home is one of the greatest challenges. That's why I think Paul challenges us with it. In fact, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul's writing to a young preacher and he says these words to him. Make sure that these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, for this is pleasing to God. Paul is talking about the way we value every relationship we have. In fact, I want you to know that when God established his world, he established it to work through relationship, not through tasks. I want to say that again. He established what he wanted for us, for us, before he ever established what he wanted from us. And what he wanted for us was to have relationships with him and relationships with one another that were all about him. We've made our walk of faith into tasks. If I do this and I don't do this, then I'm good, right? No, Jesus would say to some, I never knew you. He didn't say you didn't do things. He said, I didn't know you. And Paul is telling us that our faith becomes more real when we take it into our homes. And so we're going, to come, we're going to cover just a few light topics this morning, marriage, raising children, slavery. So it'll be light and funny, a lot of anecdotes. No. Let's begin. Everything we're talking about today must be centered on Jesus and empowered by Jesus or it will not work. But oh my goodness, what if it did? You see, when we started this series, I said to you that the question is not what if Jesus isn't enough, but what if he is? And how much could that change our marriages, our relationships with our parents and our children, and the places we work? So let's begin. Marriage, Colossians 3.18. This is a happy verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And all the women said, 
That's what I thought. Okay, <laughs> guys, you're going to get a chance, and I know you'll do better. Paul is criticized as being repressive against women, and I want to tell you that from a 2020 look, you could make that claim. I don't think you could make the case. Let me explain to you what Paul was doing. Paul was doing something revolutionary. He was copying Jesus. Nobody invited women into their kingdom. Nobody invited women into the inner circle. Nobody took the time to train women and sit with them and mentor them and disciple them except Jesus. And Jesus opened the kingdom to men and women. And this was new and fresh and it was looked down on. Christianity was made fun of because women had a vital role. The first person the angels appeared to to announce the resurrection was a woman. It was a woman who was allowed to bring Jesus into life through birth. So when people want to tell you, and you hear it even in churches today, that we don't want to talk about Paul's view on women because it's kind of old-fashioned. No, it's not. It's inspired. Because what Paul was saying in his day was so revolutionary that women were now given the option to love and serve their husbands instead of having to. Can you see the difference? They were empowered, not forced. Now you say, well, this looks like a command because you're reading it with 2020 eyes. <laughs> it's kind of strange. You're reading it with 20 or 2020 eyes. That goes 19 ways. That was awesome. Okay, And so you're coming from your cultural bias. Like, no, no, women are finally getting power. Paul's trying to put us back in our place. No, Paul gave you a place. He gave you a place that women didn't have in those days. So when we read the text, we have to remember what would it have said to his audience, not us. And when we understand what it said to his audience, then we can listen to it to each of us. And so Paul establishes this. He wants to value all people. Wives, submit to your own husbands. What does that mean? Well, I've done over 150 weddings in my career, and I've probably had 75 conversations with brides. And when we're talking about the ceremony, they love the vows, they love the opening, they love this and this, and then some of them look at me, and I love them for it. I'm not making fun of them. They'll look at me, and you know what they say, ladies? I won't say obey. <laughs> and I'm like, I'd never ask you to because it's not biblical. I've looked at the husband sometimes. I'm like, dude, are you ready? <laughs> but anyway, she's like, I won't obey. I said, it doesn't say obey. It says submit. What does submission mean? God has given the man in a marriage responsibilities. He's not given him responsibilities because he's better than you. He's given him responsibilities because God asked him to do these things. And God has empowered him and requires him to do these things. Submission to your husband is not suggesting he's better than you, he's more powerful than you, or he's worth more than you. Actually, submission to your husband is holding him so he can actually get the jobs done. Because I'll tell you this as a husband, ladies, when you believe in us, we can take over the world. When you don't believe in us, we can't get out of our own way. And you think it's powerless to submit? No, it's actually empowering for you to submit. It is not a punishment to submit to your husband. It's a blessing that you can give him because he needs it. Men, back me up. When a, when a woman helps a man lead the home, he's a better leader. When a woman supports a man in the roles that he's given, even if he's not good at it, he becomes a better husband. He becomes a better father. He becomes a better everything. Becomes more responsible. You see, all of us need someone in our life that believes in us. And what Paul's calling when he calls to submission is allow the man to do what he's asked to do and help him get it done. Serve him. Love him. Paul's not a just women be quiet and get out of the way. Absolutely not. The world wouldn't function if women got out of the way. So men, if you have a wife in your life who has made you better than you ever could have would have gone on your own, and she's given you the power and the belief in you and the faith in you, if you're smart at all, reach over and grab that girl's hand right now. 
Submission is a blessing, not a punishment. And men, maybe if we talk to our wives about what it means when they believe in us, submission would not be considered anything but a gift. And it would be a blessing. You see, in Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hear me now. Submission is not just what women do. Men, we are to submit to. Everybody submits. In fact, I'll tell you this. Why do I know everybody submits? Because if Jesus hadn't submitted to the will of his Father, you and I would not have salvation, we would not have hope, and we would not have a purpose. Our lives would be momentary. We'd be all searching for the biggest high, the fastest thrill, because tomorrow we're dead. And in the midst of this, all of us submit. In fact, Colossians and Ephesians are such parallel letters that if you read both of them, you just see what Paul's doing in each context. His points don't change. Submission to the will of God is what God is asking wives to do toward their husbands. But what if he's not a believer? What if he's kind of a creep? What if he makes it hard? What if he won't let me? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, it may not be with the words, it may be with your actions out of reverence and purity that you live your life in such a way. I had a gentleman come up to me uh, after first hour and he's like, let me tell you my story. And he told me the story and he said, you need to use 1 Peter 3 and so I will. He said he wasn't a believer when he met his wife and because of her reverence and purity and her dedication to Jesus, he's now a believer and serves the kingdom in a powerful way. What would happen if we really believed the words of Jesus worked? See, we were laughing about it behind stage. Several of us were like, listen, if I walked in here and said, hey, husbands, you're not great at this and wives, you could be better. I don't think there's a person in the room that would go, "Uh uh-uh. So I'm not here to tell you we're not good at this. We know we're not good at this, but what would happen if Jesus joined us? And we use the supremacy of Christ in our homes, in our marriages. What might happen? You see, when we look at this, respecting your husband, submitting to your husband, supporting him, encouraging him, believing in him, and assisting him in the work that God has given him, he doesn't always have to, it doesn't mean he's always right. It doesn't mean he can't be challenged. It doesn't mean he doesn't need your input and your wisdom and your experience. In fact, it means all of those things. What I want to tell you is this. I might get a text today from somebody, so let me answer the question in advance. Well, Paul calls us weaker vessels. What does that mean? It means precious. It doesn't mean worthless. It means precious. It means to hold this thing as if it were this weaker vessel that you would want nothing to destroy or damage. In fact, if you look at verse 19, this is what Paul's talking about. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why would he tell us that? Because we can be. We, we can, in an attempt to love our wives, just be harsh and controlling and say, well, you know, I'm the head of the house. Come on, get over yourself. You have responsibilities. That doesn't mean you're better. And it says to love your wife, treat her like the valuable, precious thing. And if I'm gonna use the word fragile, and I hope not to upset anybody here, but I wanna use the word fragile. Treat her as if she could be broken. As much as ladies, you can break your husbands too. Submission and respect keeps his heart whole and focused and strong. And so God is uniting this vision together of what he can do in our lives. Don't be harsh. She's a worthy person. She's valuable. She has merit. She has dignity. She needs to be treated with that each and every step of the way. And guys, if you want to know what this looks like, Paul points us in Ephesians 5. Look at Jesus. How did he serve you? Serve her the same way. He didn't say rule her. He said serve her. Guide her, love her, instruct her, encourage her, strengthen her, 
All of these things are so doable and so perfect. But he says, do it with gentleness and humility. Be gentle. Be thoughtful. See, the command of love that God gives us to love and respect one another is not contingent upon the other person's behavior. It can happen even if they won't receive it. We just love and serve. Everything said in this passage has been focused on the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Is he supreme? Is his truth supreme? And is his power supreme? And if it is, what would our marriages be like if we tried this? Let's look at parenting and children. That wasn't personal enough. Here we go. I want you to know biblically that I've yet to find an occasion where the Bible talks about how children should act that does not follow how the parents should act. There's a line here that we get our marriages right, then together we're better parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. It's interesting here that it says wives are to submit and children are to obey. Do you see the distinction? They're two different words. So the point I made earlier is founded here. Yet I, I probably and rightfully so gonna get a text message from someone saying, yeah, but my parents are doing things that they should not be doing and if I obey them, I'll be sinning. Well, listen, I looked it up because I confessed this before the church. I'm not proud of this. And I really, it's, anybody who knows me knows I struggle with this if they know me well. I hate being told I have to do anything. If you play me like an accordion and you act like it's my choice, I'll do it all. Tell me I have to, uh-uh, I don't have to do squat. So that's not Jesus-like, right? So even my youngest son will point it out to me and say, Dad, man, you got a problem with authority. Uh-huh, obey. <laughs> anyway, so I just demonstrated it. But in the midst of all of this, obey in everything. And I looked up. I, man, I want in everything to mean something then in everything, but I looked it up and it means in everything with this one exception where it contradicts the word and will of God. So if a parent would ask you to do something illegal or unethical, as a, as a Christian young person, you can disobey. But it's how you disobey is as important as why you disobey. To be disrespectful and rude because the scriptures tell us to honor our parents. Honor the position that God has given them in your life. Honor the responsibility. Like a wife submits to her husband's responsibility before the Lord, we are to honor our parents because they have been given responsibility even when they fumble it. And since I'm being controversial this morning, let me just say what I need to say, especially to young people in this room under the age of 18, your parents do know more than you. And the reason they know more than you is they've made more mistakes than you. And if they love you at all, the only reason they're in your business is they don't want your business to be their business. Church, am I lying? No, and I know you hate the fact that we think we know more than you, and one day at my funeral, you'll tell me I was right. It's too late. Tell me now. <laughs> Paul is applying this to people, not positions. So love your mom and dad with the responsibilities they've been given. Encourage them to do it. Thank them when they do. Honor them each and every step and watch what Jesus does. And fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Now, I want to clarify here. It doesn't say don't make them angry because if you love them, you will, right? Not because you want to, because you have to. If a child's allowed to do only the things that make them happy, they won't grow up to be adults. 
So sometimes you have to say no and enforce it, but you do it with love and gentleness and kindness. In other words, don't destroy them with your ability to destroy them. We are to shape our children. We are to guide our children. And sometimes our guidance means we have hands on both shoulders, we're walking behind them, and we're pointing them in the right direction. And sometimes it's walking next to them, holding their hand, and sometimes it's releasing their hand and letting them go on their own. But in each and every step, may our voice, our presence, our prayers, and our passion guide them in the right direction. It's one of those Sundays. Take this for what it's worth. Dads, Lead your children. Care about their soul as much as their batting average or their scholarship opportunities. Make sure they're doing what they need to do to become the the people God created them and not just the things that makes them popular or successful or fit in. We all know, we all went through it. High school seems like the biggest thing for four years and it's a distant memory six months out of high school. Guide your children toward Jesus. We're losing a generation that's been told that what we're talking about here is okay, but if something else comes up, that's more important. They'll know what's important by what you make important in your home. Moms, help them. When it comes down to the things that shape their souls or the things that shape their popularity, we should know what to choose. Those are hard conversations. Those are real conversations. And by the grace of God, they're necessary conversations. A home makes a community. A community makes a congregation. A congregation makes a city, a state, a nation, a world. When Satan's jacking up our homes and we're not trusting Jesus, there is no strength in all of society. We cannot make government the answer to our problems when moms and dad, we with Jesus are the answers to the problems. We take our responsibility. We stand up to it. We're prayerful. We're honorable. We do what Jesus asks. It's not what if we don't. The question is what if we would? And if you're sitting here today because I know what's going in my mind, not a good dad. I'm not a good husband. Sometimes I don't know what to do and then I do nothing, which is the worst thing. And in the midst of all of this, it's easy for every one of us to go, it's too late. My kids are already in high school. They're already doing this. They're already doing that. They don't listen. It is never too late to do the right thing. Because it's not based on our power of persuasion, it's based on the Holy Spirit's ability to move the soul. Are you with me? What would happen if we trusted the Holy Spirit to do what he does so well? By modeling and trusting and encouraging people to live their lives the way they're supposed to. All right, let's move on to the light subject, slavery. All right? (laughs) Chapter three, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, And do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. Why doesn't Paul say slavery is wrong? Why doesn't Paul condemn the whole institution? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Let me suggest two briefly with what limited time I have left. And I'm not avoiding this. I could talk at length about this if you would so choose. You can text me. But the thing I wanna point out is, first of all, Paul's intention was not to change all the social problems in the world. 
Paul was, he could have called slavery out. In fact, he even tells Christian slaves, if you can seek your freedom, seek it. But Paul, Paul did not go after changing culture by political and social movements. He did it by the love of people for the dignity of all mankind. That's why I want you to know, churches started because of the gospel. Education started because of the gospel. Orphanages started because of the gospel. It wasn't a, a, a bureaucratic governmental choice for those. All of those things historically were proven. When the church got the gospel figured out, they started actually implementing the gospel and things, social problems began to be corrected. Second thing I need to point out. Slavery in Paul's day was not the equivalent of American colonial slavery at the beginning of our country's horrendous history. You see, in our country, you could decide pretty quick who was a slave by what they were dressed in and what color they were. In Paul's day, slavery was not someone being stripped from their country, brought in against their will and treated like animals with no self-dignity and no freedom. Slaves had a semblance of freedom. It's very common that the indentured slave term is what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about somebody who caught a bunch of bad breaks, lost their property, lost their health, and they would go to a neighbor and say, can I work on your land? Would you take care of my family? Could we stay here? I will work for you. I will serve you. I will be your servant. You'll be my master. But I'm going to exchange this for safety and food and care. And in the midst of all of this, this was very, very common. In fact, I want you to know that in the times of Paul, in this day and age, slaves made money and could save their money and buy property. Slaves could buy themselves out of their servanthood. Slaves were educated by their masters. Now, yes, there was some case like the sex slavery of today and the slavery of colonial America. The Bible clearly talks about that's a wrong. That's not good. That should never happen. In fact, Israel was called by God to make sure the nations who did that got punished. In fact, what stopped slavery? Some Christians in England who stood up and it carried over the United States. And what ended it here wasn't politics. It was a church standing up and fighting for the dignity of all human rights. And Paul is saying, in fact, biblically, I can tell you two servants who did okay. One was taken captive against his will and he went to Persia. And before his life was over, he was the second most powerful man in Persia. His name's Daniel. I can tell you a young man who was sold by his brothers into slavery, he was taken as a slave into Egypt, and by the end of his life, he was the second most powerful man next to Pharaoh, and he saved millions of lives, and the church goes on because of a man named Joseph, who was a servant, who served his master well, and God used that with the power of the gospel hope, and it changed the world. So Paul is saying to those that are in this condition, you made an agreement with your master. Serve him like he's Jesus. Show the power of the gospel message in your worship at work. Masters slash owners, do for your employees what you said you would. Honor them, give them life, bless them for their work. It's a simple equation. The words master and slave send us off the edge and it ought to. Those are trigger words. But in the context, the majority of servants and slaves that Paul's talking about were people that were willingly in a relationship with someone for what they received. Thus the issue is you worship at your work. We teach our children how to worship Jesus. We worship with one another by loving and serving and upholding one another and helping each other accomplish the responsibility that God's given us. You see, when you look at what Paul's telling us to do, he's talking about the radical nature of the gospel. And I know, as I said earlier, some of us are sitting here going, Mark, it may be too late. And I know, I, I feel bad because I'm hurting some people in this room unintentionally. 
Because you did serve your husband and he left anyway. You did love your wife and she bolted. You've been betrayed and you, you tried to do the very best you could. And my heart hurts with you, not for you, it hurts with you. What do we do going this moment forward? It's not what if we don't, it's what if we do. What if we look at every relationship we have and say, I'm gonna take that awkward step. I'm looking, I'm looking for a house to hold my home. I'm looking for a place where my faith can be displayed so that I can live it every day and begin to honor Jesus in this way. And I'm gonna ask you to take just a few moments. It won't be long, but it'll be a moment for you. Our prayer has been that something popped in you today. Maybe it's as a husband or a father. Maybe it's as a mother or wife or an employee. Maybe there's something in a relationship that you have right now that you just know that faith is calling you to step into it. And the question is what if I, question's not what if I don't. The question really in your heart right now is what if I did? You see, because I can't give you a formula and you can't make it up and trying harder probably isn't gonna change anything. Trusting Jesus will change everything. Spend just a moment in the presence of the supreme king and lord of our life. Begin a conversation with him about the strength and courage you need to do or not do what he's asking us to do so that faith will live and lives will be blessed. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.